Okay, everybody, welcome. Um, this is the first Wednesday seminar of the term. If you haven't seen, we've got a really uh, cracking program every Wednesday. Because of the popularity, we may have to move to a bigger room, but so watch this space. The really good news for all of you this afternoon is that I am not going to be chairing. And um, uh, we're very, very lucky to have Richard Sandbrook, who many of you will know is the former head of BBC News, uh, the former head of the Global News Division at the BBC, and now Professor of Journalism at Cardiff. I mean, he's going to be uh, chairing most, if not all, of these Wednesday seminars in a much more adroit way than I ever did, so no pressure. Uh, and he'll be introducing Nick. Uh, James, thank you very much indeed. I'm, I'm the middle layer of this multi-tiered series of introductions here. Um, but uh, very good to see you all and uh, such a crowded room. Um, for those fellows who are in this morning's uh, seminar and conversation, and apologies to those of you uh, who weren't there, uh, this next session dovetails beautifully into the conversation we had in the presentation from Rasmus this morning in the kind of way that broadcast news editors dream of Absolutely. getting a perfect segue um, and seldom managed to pull off. But um, basically this very much picks up on all of those themes from this morning and um, I know we'll, we'll raise a lot of uh, interesting questions and discussion afterwards. So Nick Newman, for those of you who don't know him, was a former colleague of mine at the BBC. He played a, a very leading and important role in the development and success of the BBC News uh, online site, the first one, and indeed in, in, in expanding BBC's digital news activities. He's now a consultant helping media organisation come to terms with this revolution that they're all experiencing in terms of digital, and most importantly, of course, works uh, uh, here with the Reuters Institute, uh, in leading light for the uh, annual digital news report. So, Nick, straight over to you. Thank you. Uh, great to see so many people here. Um, and the subject is uh, second wave disruption for news. Uh, I guess, guess people talk about you know the digital revolution uh, as if that's something that's going to end and then we'll be through it into something else. Uh, I kind of kind of think of it as a wave of more of a wave of change. And uh, I've seen in my short time doing digital um, lots of lots of change. So I think some distinct phases, and I think we're. Uh, in the middle of uh, a very distinct second second phase, and that's really what I'm going to talk about today, uh, based on mobile and social, basically. Um, and just as the sort of media is trying to come to terms with what the first one meant, the second one sort of hit, and, and I'm going to talk about the, the sort of what that is and the implications of that and how media companies are trying to respond to it, um, essentially. Um, so Richard's done a fantastic job on uh, telling you a little bit about me, a little bit more in terms of background. So a lot of my time is spent doing international news. So I, I worked for World Service Radio, television, was the founding um, uh, world editor of BBC News Online. So uh, ran international news for five years. And then I did a little flip-flop into technology. So I, I, I moved to running software teams and, um, and designers uh, and uh, people who built things called products that, that are now becoming a bit more important. So I spent 10 years doing that for BBC Journalism. Uh, and, uh, and as Richard said, I do a kind of a mixture of things here. But um, you know, some of the most fascinating things are going around media companies and finding out how they're coping with this change. So these are some of the people I've worked with recently. So uh, BBC still, uh, FT, uh, even the government are coming to terms with these kind of, of transitions and how you can deliver better experiences <coughs> through digital, what digital is for, what, what digital is not for. 
so I spent a lot of time sort of thinking about that and that gives a, a really interesting perspective I think on, on what we're seeing. And then um, <clears throat> I'm the lead author of the Reuters Institute Digital News Report, which if you haven't seen it, um, comes out in June every year and uh, is now the world's largest uh, survey of uh, how people are consuming news around the world. We did 12 countries last year, we're going to do 26 this year. So it's becoming a really, really significant um, resource. What? It's 2016. 2016, sorry, 2016. next year we're going to do, yeah. I'm getting ahead of myself. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, either way, it's a benchmark for the industry <laughs> and, 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 a, and a, a brilliant piece of work. So, um, uh, today's agenda, what am I going to talk about? Um, so, uh, by the way, I'm, I'm, the slides will be available if, you, if you'd like, like them afterwards, so I don't feel you have to take sort of endless notes on it. Um, sort of five things, really. So, fir first of all, uh, social mobile and video or visual content, I tend to think about it. These are kind of the big disruptors in digital media, and I'll talk a little bit about how they're affecting uh, consumption, how they're affecting the formats of journalism, what we think of the sort of the atoms of journalism, and crucially, how you discover uh, journalism. Secondly, uh, I'll talk about the, the growth of these enormous uh, global platforms for distribution of content. And again, crucially, how people discover content is changing because of these platforms. Thirdly, I'll look at um, the, uh, the, the, the democratization of news gathering, so the way in which, as journalists, we use these networks, mobile and social, increasingly to, uh, to source stories. Uh, I'll talk uh, a little bit about uh, data and, and measurement and why that's so important, and I'll talk about innovation, why it's so difficult for media companies uh, to move quickly to collaborate across departmental boundaries, and I'll talk about some of the new roles and skills that media companies are emerging in media companies as a result of these changes. So, uh, first thing is mobile. So this is data from the Royce Institute Digital News Reports, just looking at the UK data. Um, which shows that something like 40% now are accessing via smartphones every week. Uh, and that's about two thirds of smartphone users are using a smartphone now to connect to news at least once a week. Um, and in terms of individual news sites, what that means is uh, the BBC news site, something between 60 and 65% of their traffic now comes from mobile, by which they mean tablet and mobile. Uh, for some sites, it's it, it's even higher than that, and that's gone from um, you know when Richard and I were at the BBC, that would be one or two percent, but in the last few years, that's gone from around sort of ten percent to around sixty uh, percent. So that is massively transformational. And if news editors are still looking at uh, you know PC monitors as a way of viewing their sites, that's a mistake because most of their audience aren't anymore. Um, Broadly from our research, what we see is the smartphone has been growing incredibly rapidly over the last few years. Tablet growth, which has been very fast, is essentially slowing. And fewer people are, acce are accessing uh, through computers in, in, in many countries. So the gap between, uh, you know, a few years ago we thought maybe tablet was gonna be the saver of the news industry. Um, but actually what you're seeing is that there's a growing gap between the smartphone, which is growing faster, it's a very personal device, and uh, the more shared devices, which are still growing but not as fast. Um, and of course, <coughs> you know, it's outside the, in, in, develop, in the developing world, the smartphone is absolutely essential. It's the, it's the main way in which people are going to get on the internet. It opens up the internet to, uh, to pretty much everybody over, over a reasonable time span. And, um, and in terms of, of uh, just a, a, a snapshot, these are some people who um, 
used to be at the Reuters Institute, or we just found around the streets of Oxford talking about uh, their consumption habits. I get most of my news from a smartphone or tablet, um, not, not a newspaper or computer. It's more interactive, you can press something to play, um, you can scroll through it quite quickly. Nowadays I get the news mainly through tablets and smartphones uh, surfing the web. I read half of the news on newspapers and another half on smartphones and tablets. I'm very much uh, more addicted to news. I check them uh, every now and then. I will also when I'm waiting at, uh, for the bus or having a coffee. So uh, it's much more frequent. Maybe it's less uh, deep, it's more superficial, but it's more frequent. So a few questions there about um, you know, whether we have the same kind of uh, level of attention uh, with a smartphone but there's no doubting the sort of convenience for, for, for some of those people and, and, and its usefulness in lots of different situations. <clears throat> so we, we're increasingly um, seeing the smartphone as the defining device of the digital age um, because of its flexibility, its low cost, uh, because it's available to everyone, and crucially, it's, it's a very personal uh, device. So in the UK, um, now over a quarter, 27% say that the smartphone is their most important way of getting digital news. But it's really interesting that if you look under 35s, that figure rises to, 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 to pretty much uh, half. Uh, as another example of the growing centrality, if you just take one specific type of news use case, so if you're traveling on public transport, uh, in this case on, uh, on an underground train in London, uh, so two years ago, it was uh, about 48% said that they're using the smartphone and that was pretty much neck and neck with printed newspapers. Uh, so that's grown 20 percentage points in two years. Uh, it's just one, one use case. And then uh, this was a question that we asked um, for the first time this year about um, what else you might be doing when you're watching television news, the sort of level of distraction. So smartphones also take us away from the news. So you might be watching the evening television news, but over half of us are actually doing their emails, uh, browsing the web, having conversations on social media, not necessarily having anything to do with, uh, with what's on screen. So there's that's that, that problem of attention, both for old media that are being driven partly by uh, some of these new, new devices. It's a double-edged sword. <clears throat> um, in terms of the devices themselves, it's worth noticing that, um, that they're changing. They've changed very fast in, in a few years. So uh, I don't know what you have, what kind of size smartphones you have, but basically they've been getting get bigger. These are, these are sort of larger uh, phones, are, I think in many ways the game changer. It's the fastest growing sector. And um, one of the, the reasons it's uh, significant is the old style phones are really hard to read articles on. And this completely transforms it. Just that little bit bigger screen, the better screen resolution. The other crucial aspect of these is that they are um, brilliant for visual content and for video. So one of, the, one of the main reasons why we're seeing an explosion in video content uh, on mobile is that um, these devices, and you see it all the time, are being used for consuming entertainment content or for consuming video. So that really wouldn't have been possible a few years ago, not just the connectivity, but also the, the screen resolution and the size of the screen uh, is absolutely crucial. It's one of the reasons why tablet sales is, is falling or, or the growth is, 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 going, is getting less is because these are kind of intermediate devices that do the job, but in a very personal way. Uh, the other thing that uh, I think we're, we're starting to see and we can expect more of in the next few years is um, that smartphones are going to be much more of a hub 
into other devices such as uh, smartwatches, but there'll be a range of other wearables or other devices that effectively connect into the smartphone. Um, so many people will probably find uh, television content through their smartphone and then sort of flip it to the television. That's one, one use case. Um, but in terms of, of, of these watches, um, I think the Apple Watch is supposed to sell somewhere around 10 million by the end of the year. Uh, and we're starting to see the benefits of what people are calling glanceable content. So again, the screens demand a different kind of format. You're not, you're not reading an article on one of these things. This is about a little bit of content that's relevant to you at a moment in time, or something that's alerting you to something you might want to do later. Uh, so it's for communication, but it's also for, for, for news as well. And we don't quite know what these things are going to be and how much how important they're going to be, but they're part of this ecosystem that lives in orbit around around the watch itself. Crucial to that for news and related to that is um, is this sort of growth that we're all going to have about notifications and alerts. So they may come to your watch, they may come to uh, the lock screen of your of your phone. Uh, this was my lock screen yesterday. Some people talk about the lock screen of the phone being the new homepage. And so depending on who you've uh, subscribed to, what have I got here? I've got, uh, I've got a social aggregator that's telling me there about um, Playboy getting rid of nudes. Uh, and that is recommendations from my social networks. That's automated looking at who I'm following Twitter and then telling me the stories they think I'm gonna be most interested in. And because it's trending <coughs> very fast, it actually sends me an alert to tell me this is something you're going, really going to be interested in. Uh, cricket, because I've subscribed specifically for, um, for for cricket alerts. Good that this is not too intrusive. You know, and th this could have been quite worrying, couldn't it? But, uh, I think it's perfectly reasonable. A bearded hipster, so this is that's another aggregation, so it's another automatic aggregator. So it's interesting that how many of these are actually mainstream brands and how many are uh, other people taking some of that value. Uh, BBC News fairly straightforward in inflation one as well. Anyway, the point is that um, last year, virtually nobody was receiving those. What The news organisations weren't sending very many of them. You see in the UK, they're 3% to 10% in, in, in one year. We see that in, in every country. And we're going to see loads more of that, and we'll get fed up with alerts, and we'll want to uh, turn them off. There will be, uh, you know, that's that's one of the, the, the sort of next great battle battlegrounds. So um, mobile, in all its forms, is uh, still only halfway through this, this change and it's going to be hugely disruptive. Um, what does it mean for, for media companies? Well, this is a chart I like uh, from the uh, FT, logs of the FT, and it shows the times of day when people are uh, using the FT aspects of FT.com. And the blue line in the middle is traditionally uh, when people consume news. So they would consume news at lunchtime, they would, they would listen to the radio or television in the morning. Uh, but for the FT, literally in the last two years, we have a new digital prime time. And for business publications like that, it's very early because businessmen get up very early, so it's somewhere between six and seven. And what was interesting when they were looking at that is that a lot of those visits were quite quick and sharp. So they're coming in to get little bits of briefing for the day and actually thinking about, um, well, what, what about the FT's um, output? I mean, ha what time do you think they file their stories? Any, any guesses? Is that the time people wake up and reach for the phone? So you would think they would file them around there, right? Yeah. When, when do you think they really file? 
So typical news organisation, they actually come in, they're quite laid back in the, in the FT, so they come in, they always have a pink newspaper under their arms, they come into the building, they, they have a leisurely morning meeting, they probably have a long lunch, they, they're one of the few uh, organisations that can still do long lunches I think, then they come back, they make a few phone calls, have a bit of a panic, <laughs> and then they file the stories, <laughs> basically in the dip. So there is a kind of massive mismatch here between audience expectations and, and what people are doing. So, well, this is how it used to work, but this is the kind of uh, amazing data chart that has transformed uh, working practices within news organisations because they show that to the, to the board of management uh, and they say, this is crazy, we're going to reorganise all of your work patterns. So they did, they put people in, in Hong Kong so that they could hit the new digital prime time. They also uh, launched two new products so it's not good enough to just say, well, we'll take the existing journalism and do it at a different time because this is mobile, it's different. So they created a product called Fast FT, which is lots of updates through the day, small team of people doing fast news, little breaking updates, essentially to hit that, that audience need, whilst recognising that people still want depth, they still want you know, the detailed analysis, and that there will be people who will do that during the day to their normal time scale. So they split out, if you like, fast news and, and other news. And the other thing they created was something called uh, First FT, which is a, basically a newsletter, an email newsletter, which again is aimed at hitting that, um, that early morning desire to be briefed on the day. So you can start to see how mobile changes a lot of things and not just the time that people uh, do things. Um, this is a, a chart from our digital news report, which looks at all digital news consumption in the UK, so that's television, radio, and online, by age. So what you've got here is the red line is 18 to 24s, and the green line is 45 plus, <coughs> and the dotted line is just the average. And so what you see is still actually people have very distinct times when they want news, um, or the over 45s do, so the early morning, and then there's a lunchtime peak, and an early evening peak, which coincides with traditional television news bulletins. Um, but you can see that 18 to 24s have a completely different pattern. And actually, if you look at 25 to 34s, it's not very different. It's much flatter. They just want news when they want it throughout the day. So what we're seeing in the UK is fewer, particularly uh, younger people watching built uh, news bulletins. Uh, they're, they're obviously much more online. This chart <coughs> basically shows that amazing generational split that we have in terms of behaviours. So 18 to 24s is the, is the blue line this time, 055s is the green line, and what we're basically seeing here is that uh, 18 to 24s, 76% say that, that online is their main source of news. So the most important thing, the thing they could do at least without, is online, and uh, only 12% of them say television news is the most important thing, whereas for... 055 is completely different, so it's primarily television and only 18% are saying online. And so fundamentally in a slide, that is, uh, that is the dilemma for news organisations. Most of the revenue is over here with, with print and, and, and television, so traditional media, uh, but increasingly your future is over here. And how do you manage that transition? How do you manage the pace? How can you deliver to both of those at a time when you're under enormous uh, revenue uh, constraints because print, which is your primary revenue, <coughs> is, is, is declining. 
Um, and you know, in a nutshell, that is the problem for most traditional traditional media organisations: keeping these two very different behaviours um, uh, going and and thinking about the future as well as um, as banking. Is this for UK? This is for UK, but every country we've looked at has a similar similar chart. Slightly more exaggeration in the UK. Uh, you know, different countries at different stages of, of, of development. So that's mobile, um, uh, but it's really. Um, it's really the combination with social media that's, that's been so um, powerful. And the emergence of these giant networks that have, in effect, become alternative media distribution systems. So uh, Facebook, as we know, is the largest of them all. Uh, I think it was last month, one billion people uh, connected to Facebook in a, in a single day. So that's, uh, I think, 7% of, of the adult population of the planet connecting on one day to, uh, to one network. Uh, Twitter's grown, I think these figures are slightly out of date, around 300 million, oh, 300 million active users around the world. YouTube, over a billion actives. And the, and the amount of video consumed on YouTube is growing at its fastest rate ever. So, seven, well not necessarily ever, but certainly for years. 70% a year uh, increased consumption of video through, through YouTube. So, these networks are, in some senses, maturing and consolidating, but at the same time, so these top three, but then at the same time we have uh, a whole load of fragmentation. So we've we've had over the last few years, you know, amazing numbers of new networks. Um, Instagram's only been around for a few years, has again hundreds of millions of users. Vine, less than two years, I think, um, again over uh, you know, hundreds of million users. Pinterest for pictures, Snapchat for ephemeral media. You know, all of these these new ways <coughs> of of communicating, uh, of creating personal media. Of distributing that media have emerged in the, in the last few years, and then uh, we've had the uh, emergence of the new messaging apps such as uh, Line, WhatsApp, WeChat, Viber, and many many more. It's really hard to uh, to keep up with, with with just the numbers of these things. So I, that's why I put maturity and consolidation on the one hand, but also uh, fragmentation. Uh, so in terms of um, the overall statistics. Uh, this is some data that we have in the digital news report, which looks at uh, the networks, the most popular networks, averaged over all of our countries, so over the 12 countries, uh, and using it for any purpose. That's the blue line. So you can see Facebook is used by 65% of if you of, of everybody, um, and 41% of those are using it for news. So the bit that's often hard to guess at is how much of these networks are used for news. So uh, you can see that over, on average, over two thirds, about two thirds of people who use Facebook are using it in some way for reading, watching, sharing, or discussing news in the last week. So that's a really significant number of people. <clears throat> and that's up six percentage points in one year. So people talk a lot about Facebook becoming a really significant player in news and we can see it happening every year. So a six percentage point increase in Facebook's use for news in a year. Uh, also, <coughs> we did some analysis of um, top news sites in the English language, and it was a 42% increase in the amount of shares coming to mainstream media from Facebook in one year. So it, it is becoming more important. Crucial to mention that two of the fastest growing networks, WhatsApp and Instagram, also owned by Facebook. So people have concerns about you know one company having a big uh, more control over what, what's going on in terms of news and news discovery. Um, Facebook's certainly one to watch at the moment. Um, some of the new messaging apps are quite interesting. So um, what we find there is it's very patchy. So 
what we see is in most countries, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter are, are the most popular networks for news, but uh, WhatsApp is popular in some countries and not in others. So much more variable. So you have uh, in Brazil, that's doubled in a year, 34% uh, was used in the presidential election uh, quite heavily, 27% in Spain, 18% in Italy, but only about 1% in, in the UK and 1% in, uh, in the US. So, um, so it's not the same everywhere, and that's partly because of the way in which uh, WhatsApp became popular in some countries and not others because of how um, tariffs were set up in, uh, in mobile phones, so whether you had to pay or you didn't have to pay. So that's where it became popular. Uh, this, is, um, this is a fellow who used to work at, uh, who, who used to be here um, from India, a guy called Sudhi Sen, who's defence correspondent of NDTV in India, and WhatsApp is also incredibly popular in India. Just talking a little bit about how a closed messaging app uh, can be used for journalism and, and how it was used in the Indian elections. Again, a slight full start with the, with the, uh, with the video which you'll get used to. Well, Facebook you know, has got a little bit of a lag time. WhatsApp is immediate and you can be in touch with so many other people. At the same point of time, there's an entire group that you can create. Like for us, you know, we have these groups where we put on our, our post messages, whether it is, you know, something happening in the defense industry or some viewer or somebody trying to tell you something so it's the instantaneity of the the whole instant fact of it that is there that, that makes it very very popular in this elections we have seen at least 2014 elections we have seen and which is why the bjp I don't know, has, has scored hugely I and mean, they were miles ahead of the congress they used the social media and mainly social media like whatsapp and then came facebook and then came you know the others but you know i would say uh, whatsapp was was leading the entire march in you know keeping getting across to people and you know influencing people uh you know in a particular way so i think that's quite interesting just to um just to hear how these networks are different and that they're used in different ways so in, in that case the group functionality is particularly important it's much harder to distribute content in whatsapp compared with something like facebook or or, or twitter in general um Facebook discovery, uh, so social media discovery, um, is also obviously age-related. Uh, so here we're kind of asking about how do you find news in the first place? So do you come to a brand? Do you go directly to a brand first? Maybe do you start your journey with a search query? Or are you finding content through social? And uh, again, we've done that split between the older plus 45s with the blue and the 1824s red. And what you can see is that for, uh, this is US, but in the UK and other countries, quite often the brand is the first one and then search or they're pretty even. But you can see for younger people, um, social media is, is, is really either the first or in this case, the second. And you're much more likely to use social media to discover if, if, you're, if you're younger. And that's really what's driven a lot of these new uh, sites that have been driven by social sharing. Uh, sometimes people call them you know, distributed news sites. They don't really care about a homepage. They care about creating content. And essentially, they're built on using these, these new distribution platforms. That's how people consume it. They're not trying to build a destination in their own right. Uh, so Joni Peretti, who started BuzzFeed, talks about uh, we started with portals. And then search was the way in which uh, you discovered content and now social is the new gateway, the, the, the new starting point. I don't think he's, he's right because it's still a very, very mixed picture and I think it will be for a long period of time. But social, certainly for BuzzFeed, they, they have um, 
uh, 75% of their traffic comes from social media and 50% comes from mobile. Uh, and so here's just a couple of Americans talking about that, talking about social media and, um, and, and how they start their day. Because I wake up in the morning, I check my Facebook for any messages and that sort of things, and I go through my news feed, and I'll definitely find some articles that way from things that people have shared or that just come up on there as news. Social media is, uh, for me, the most important way that I access news. Um, it's simply because I don't think uh, people in my generation are going out as much and reading a full newspaper. They're looking at what their friends are reading and what their relatives are reading, what people are posting online, what's trending on Twitter. Yeah, so I think that's, uh, people in my generation don't read the full newspaper in the same way as they're not sitting down and watching the television news bulletin at the end of the day. They're looking at what their friends are reading and, and what's trending as a sort of starting point for, 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 for what they might uh, view or listen to. Um, so I mentioned different networks are different. So one of the questions we asked this year in the survey was, um, uh, you say you use Twitter or Facebook for news. Um, do you see these networks as a useful way of getting to news? Or are you doing other things and you come across news? So which of those two is it? And broadly what you see is Twitter is a news network. It's a news destination. 65% of people say that they're going there specifically to look for, for, for news and therefore the types of people you get there tend to be much more active, uh, much more interested in news, much more influencers. Uh, whereas in Facebook, uh, you're broadly there for other purposes. You're there to communicate with friends, uh, but if something big happens, then it, it, it will come across your, your agenda. So very, very different. And therefore the kind of strategies that news organizations will will go for in terms of distributing content will be different and the type of content that works will be different. I think this is what news organisations have been learning is that what you put into one social network won't work in other ones. You need to really think about the context and, and the type of people who are there. So uh, consistently the top English publishers in uh, Facebook and Twitter, this is data from Newswhip, is the BBC number one, New York Times number two every month. So serious news, serious news hunters in Twitter. Whereas in Facebook, the top ones play Buzz, Huffington Post, BuzzFeed. So it just gives you an idea of the different kind of content that resonates there. YouTube is inter interesting. Um, this is just a couple of examples of, um, of how it's not just text. Uh, so we're seeing a lot more video being shared and getting some absolutely enormous numbers. So the one on the left is an interview that was done, by, uh, Stephen, uh, by, done with Stephen Fry uh, on a religious topic on uh, RTE, which is the main public broadcaster in, in Ireland. And as uh, you can see, that got 5 million views on YouTube. Any ideas how many people would have watched that on prime time Irish television? You can add in the repeats if you want. One million? It's about 150,000. <coughs> so, um, and then the one on the right is uh, 10 million pretty much for that Paxman interview. Uh, so Jeremy Paxson uh, was, was the presenter of, of Newsnight, which is the evening main current affairs in the UK. And he interviewed Russell Brown, who's a comedian turned um, revolutionary politician, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost impossible to describe. Anyway, this 17-minute interview um, went out and uh, got almost 10 million people. Um, and the average week, weekday Newsnight audience, any guesses? 600,000. It was 600,000, but it's come down quite a lot in the last few years for, for many of the same reasons. I think it's about 450,000 now is the average week, weekday. So you can see that for um, 
you know, for certain types of content which you know demand to be shared, uh, this you see the power of these new distribution systems for when you get the content right, when it resonates with people, when you when you have the community in place to be able to deliver that, you can see the potential and the power of it. Um, so the uh, the other point about um, about this is that. Um, uh, we, so we think of YouTube as the video network. Um, this chart basically just says that Facebook have overtaken um, YouTube in the last year. Uh, you have to remember that a lot of this is done through autoplay, so it's not real plays because Facebook counts a play as three seconds. But even so, <coughs> um, you can see how uh, Facebook have, have, have focused on video. So their strategy this year has been all about video. So if you think about your social networks, for those of you who are on social networks, uh, they started with text, text updates, and then last year they filled up with pictures, and this year they filled up with, with, with videos. And that's a deliberate strategy, uh, and you'll also have seen that uh, Twitter's done the same, so Twitter launched uh, autoplay videos, and you'll see exactly the same with Twitter. So it went through text, and then pictures, and then videos. Uh, so that's obviously one of the, uh, <coughs> one of the huge new trends. Uh, so we see new focus on autoplay and on, on video. Uh, basically, within that algorithm, the more video you watch, uh, the more video you're shown. Um, not surprisingly, the kind of video that is produced by um, broadcasters doesn't really work. You know, half-hour documentary does not work in a news feed in, the, in, in this way. What you're really seeing is a whole load of short-form snippets of different kinds of content. You can see how the branding uh, needs to work differently. Uh, for, for news organisations. You see how professional content is just mixed up with, in this case, user-generated uh, video of a explosion. Oh yeah, car crash. Um, living together in this new experience. So that raises all kinds of, uh, of new dilemmas, uh, issues in terms of uh, distributed content. Um, and, you know, I think where's this heading? So uh, people talk about 2015 as being the year of distributed content. So the emergence, not just of networks, but of networks that carry links, but networks where you are expected to publish your content directly into those networks. So uh, you know, the idea is that um, you're not very good at creating platforms of your own where you load stuff quickly. So we will create them for you and you publish content directly into those platforms because that's where you'll get the audience. We understand technology and will help you to monetize it as well. So the first example of this oh, was like sort of, um, earlier this year with uh, Snapchat Discover. So this is an example of how that works. You have an interface with branded content, but you have to create content specifically for Snapchat Discover. So this is just a hook, a video hook into a longer article. It's Vice News, another company that's focusing on distributing content. And you can see how visual that is for young people. They're creating formats and you are supposed to play to their tune, to create content in, 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 in that way. And this is just a list of ones we have so far. Snapchat, Discover, Instagram, WeChat, all these are offering platforms for, uh, for content to be provided and distributed. Medium, uh, for longer form content, uh, YouTube. So the content you publish in YouTube sits on their platform. That's the difference to, to stuff that you put on your own platform and embed elsewhere. Uh, Apple News, uh, not yet available in the UK, but launched, just launched in the US. Uh, Twitter Moments, Ditto, coming to the UK shortly. 
So these are all essentially uh, attempts to say, give us your content, we'll monetize it, do it in a different way, the move to distributed content. So social, um, social media is not just about distribution, uh, it's, also, it's also about changing the way we gather and report the news. And that continues to change day by day. Essentially, we've been through the same process. If you remember, in the early days of social media, it was about, uh, I remember working on the BBC News site, and the first time I came across this was when Suharto in Indonesia was, was, was falling, was being toppled, and we heard all kinds of reports about things that were having in, happening in different islands. And we actually came across it by email and people posting uh, comments forms on our website and they were telling us about things that had happened in remote islands where we didn't have a correspondent and the problem was how the hell do you verify that how do you know it's true but there was such a tide of, of, of stories uh, we were then able to go and investigate it and turn some of that in, into content so for me that was the light bulb moment and then we went from there with Twitter uh, with text and then just as we've seen in terms of you know going through that picture from text to pictures to video we've seen the same with, uh, with news gathering. So this was the first picture uh, that did that. Uh, so this was um, the Hudson plane crash in beginning of 2009, I think it was. So came down in, in, in the river and Jonas Crumbs was uh, on the ferry and took the first picture and it was around the world before the New York Times and the New York Post and anyone else could get there. And it was the first time Twitter had, had this scoop and it was another light bulb moment. And now we have, uh, every time it's always a plane crash. So this is a vine. This is a 15 second loop of uh, the plane going into the river in Taiwan la last year. Uh, it's slightly distasteful when you think about it in this way. <coughs> the presentation. Um, and we've now gone, of course, from there into live video. So this is uh, Periscope. And the idea is that anybody can, uh, so you, you don't have to record it and then upload it anymore. You can just go live when anything happens. So I think the, um, the what's the church, is it called the Churchill Hotel down the, down the road? Um, Randolph. Randolph, yeah, where church, yeah, Randolph Hotel. So there was a similar kind of story. So people were periscoping that and, and, and putting it out live. This is, this is actually, the, I think, the first week that it was uh, it, it, it launched in America. And you already had three people, uh, basically you had three different feeds of high definition video of, uh, of what was going on in Manhattan, Second Avenue. Uh, already you had uh, somebody telling us in the comments that the future of real-time journalism is here, which I thought was particularly amusing. Um, it normally takes a little bit longer than that. Um, whole lot of unsubstantiated stuff there. Um, the, the interesting thing about Periscope is you get you get the uh, real-time feedback, so that's one of the uh, that's one of the the, the, the commenting and the, and the reactions. But the other reason these these things have been around for ages, live streaming uh, video has been around for ages. The reason it's taken off now is two things. One is obviously the connectivity, um, but crucially, before you could never summon an audience. So it's really your ability to connect in with Twitter and summon an audience of thousands of people within seconds of you starting that broadcast, that transforms it. So I get um, Periscope alerts when my friends go live on Periscope on my Apple Watch, and within seconds I can be watching that, that, that live stream. So the problem was not that you, you could always go live, but could you ever get an audience to it, or would the broadcast be over by the time everyone arrived? And the point about alerts and notifications is it changes that equation completely. Um, I, I'm not 
I'm not sure what the periscope is going to be that useful, but it will be one weapon in, in the armory. Uh, skip that, I think. Yeah. So, so I, th I think the, the the point is that um, so it's not just about news gathering. I mean, social media has changed so many other things, and um, I think what it's really done is given citizens. Not everyone wants to participate, but um, but you have the possibility now to participate, and that's what's uh, so exciting. So it's not just about being a, a news gatherer. Very few people want to do that, but you can sign a petition. You can you can make a difference in other ways. You can write a comment. You can you can feel that, that, that something's changing, for good or ill. So just one example of that, and there's just a million examples of the same thing, which we've talked about over the years, but um, this is one from just a few weeks ago, Refugees Welcome. And this is really how social media and mainstream media work together to change a debate and uh, put politicians and institutions particularly on the back foot. So it started with um, the sort of tide of concern about the refugees coming to Europe and the hashtag Refugees Welcome. And if you remember that picture on the beach in, in Turkey of the little boy who, who died. So basically what happened is nobody had printed that because it was, it was unprintable by the old rules, um, but it was going around in social media. And as it went around in social media, you started to get um, a real sort of head of steam around the story that something must be done. And, um, and then the newsrooms were looking at this because they now monitor social media and saying, we've got to do something about it. What are we going to do for our front page tomorrow? And uh, this happened in several countries, but in the UK, the Independent decided to publish that picture. Uh, but it didn't just publish the picture, it published it with a petition that had already been running. So it basically was trying to harness the social media action. Uh, this is the petition, uh, the picture's kind of grayed out behind. Um, and that was quite a shocking thing for them to do. It was just right bold on the front page. Built in Germany did the same thing. And um, what you see is 24 hours later, David Cameron changed his position. So the politicians, uh, in this case, uh, the UK saying they weren't going to accept any more and then they're going to accept thousands more Syrian refugees. So it's this sort of picture we've seen a few times uh, where social media uh, forces the media to act, the media amplifies the conversation in social media, uh, and then what happens is everyone feels they've done something and, um, and, uh, and they, they can stop worrying about it. But the politicians, I'm, I'm not saying this is a good thing, I'm just saying that one of the things that's happened is that politicians uh, and institutions have much less time to think, and they are absolutely forced to react. Uh, probably another reaction this week was, uh, I think this morning, they, they, they changed the policy towards um, support a, a British company um, building or helping with building prisons in Saudi Arabia, um, and uh, that was part of, partly a politician standing up within the government saying we have to do something, but driven again by public opinion, and public opinion can be heard more because of social media. Uh, it's complicated though because uh, it's not just about um, us having our say, it's also about the um, politicians being able to have their say and use these new channels. So nobody has a, a right to use the, I mean, everyone has a right to use these channels. Um, this is um, uh, this is Barack Obama, uh, so this is the four more years tweet when he won the uh, election. And I think it's really interesting that the picture for this was chosen several weeks before and they decided not to announce it on television this time, they decided to announce it on Twitter uh, because they wanted that picture to be the one. And so uh, the media picked it up. It was front page of uh, New York Post, The Economist. You know, basically they used that picture. He helped to set the agenda by, by using it. And you know, there's lots of people doing that. This is quite interesting. This is a um, British MP 
now able to broadcast from the beaches of Lesbos this week. She's um, a Labour MP and she's done a whole series of live video broadcasts uh, about what's going on. Um, that's, a, that's a politician broadcaster, I don't know. This is, um, uh, again, you know, building up her channel, talking directly, not feeling that you have to go through traditional media company or journalists to get your view out. And getting a, a big audience for it. Uh, of course, Royal Babies are announced first now on Twitter. We shouldn't forget. This is important. And you know, more troublingly, um, anybody can use. Uh, so ISIS are, are, are very adept at using social media channels to get their messages out, both with messages for the general, for, for, for the general public, but also specifically for for their supporters. Um, so uh, I think. Anybody can use these tools, and and um, and uh, so in some senses they're opportunities for ordinary people to be heard. In other cases, they're just tools that journalists can use or politicians can use. And um, it's interesting, uh, you know, certainly in my experience at the BBC, it's quite often what happened was journalists would only use high-end equipment. They wouldn't they wouldn't stoop to using some of these tools, despite the immediacy uh, and possibilities. Uh, but I think that's kind of changing now. So, so just a couple of examples. Uh, this is uh, Tim Poole, who uh, made his reputation actually in the Occupy process in 2011, and then uh, showing what is possible through uh, Google Glass in Turkey. So this is something he did for Vice Online. He streamed uh, for hours at a time what was happening in terms of the protest live, a little bit like the Truman Show, if you ever saw that film. And uh, he got up to 750,000 people watching his live streams. Uh, in a single day, find an incredible number of people. Um, Nick Garnett, BBC journalist, uh, using Periscope during the Paul earthquakes, um, first time. So he just happened to have a little sliver of 3G connectivity, and he went live uh, on on Periscope. I'll just play it. It's worth just listening to him uh, a few seconds of it. To me, completely and utterly devastating. Look at this. And this is a village that's been completely and utterly devastated. Let me just walk up and take you to the main street. This is the marketplace in Sibiyad. And every single house is wrecked. Uh, there are things just strewn around all over the place. Uh, there we've seen children's children's school books. Every single property that's everything that people own has gone in the, the damage of it. Uh, and yet still people are are getting on with life. You can see it. Uh, okay, so um, I, th I think that was uh, just gives you an, uh, it was very compelling if you if you if you watch the whole thing, even though the quality was was less good. Okay, so social, mobile and video. Uh, so just briefly how are companies uh, and others responding to these trends? So um, I think one of the things we've seen over the last few years is big media companies starting to produce uh, digitally native content for the first time. So rather than taking their television or radio content, print content, and shoehorning it in, uh, we're starting to see a number of projects where people are trying to do things from a digital point of view first. So the ones on the left are a few brands that are aimed at young people that have tried to do some more blogs and use digital uh, for example, data journalism in the case of Amped from Trinity Mirror. Uh, this is a BBC video, which I think is quite interesting. 15 seconds.
essentially taking uh, taking a story uh, and trying to tell that story in a very compressed period of time. And this would have been aimed at Instagram and, and at Line. So this is not saying we're going to do this for our website. It's essentially saying we're going to take this content and distribute it. Another uh, example of innovation in content and the types of formats that you can use. Uh, this is something called Go Figure. So it's essentially saying, instead of writing a story uh, about AIDS and Sub-Saharan Africa, why don't we uh, do something which has a, a number and a picture and we tell that story both to provide context within our own stories but also take some of those formats out into social media as a way of attracting attention to something uh, more important. Uh, so we're seeing a lot more of these kind of formats. Another key trend is uh, curating uh, other people's content. Uh, and we talked earlier about um, this idea of trying to pull together uh, digests of information for people at particular times of day. So Quartz, which is a new media site, has built uh, a lot of its traffic on an email which comes out once a day, which is essentially a curated digest of the things you need to know. And within that, a huge number of the links, they don't have to produce themselves. They're linking to other people's content. New York Times, in their New York Times app, does the same thing. So it's not just its own content. We're saying we're going to pull together a one-stop shop of information that you might like, and we're going to link to our direct competitors. In this case, we're linking to, to, to Newsweek. Uh, another key trend in terms of formats and the changing formats of news, so this is basically moving away from the article, is the growth of explainer journalism. So Vox are, are sort of the are pioneers of some of this. They create these sort of cards, um, background cards, which, are, which you can read on their own website or you can take bits of it and embed them in somebody else's website. Uh, so in this case on, on Bernie Sanders, uh, there's one about Ebola, uh, in this case on the BBC's news website. So um, thinking about journalism, answering questions, but not necessarily writing along a long thing about it, but thinking about how can you format that in a way that answers people's questions. I'll clip over this because I've been going on too long. Uh, visual content, uh, so we're seeing more visual content, more complex content. Some of this is really about compressing storytelling. So uh, in the old days, this is the story uh, from earlier this year of when uh, two climbers went up El Capitan in Yosemite Park and they climbed up this wall and uh, previously, you might have written 10,000 words on it. It might have taken 20 minutes of my time to read it. In this particular case, it's a 3D model, and you just basically, you kind of climb the mountain, and as you go, you come across a little picture or a bit of information. So it's really the same story, and I'm getting a huge amount of detail, but it's very compressed. So I can, it's not dumbing down, but it's using uh, lots of different techniques to tell the stories in different ways. Uh, previously that would have been done uh, at the New York Times just on desktop, uh, but now everything they do like this has to work on a mobile. So it starts with mobile and thinks about how you then make that work on a, on a desktop. And then finally, um, we're seeing a real change in skills in media companies as a result of what I've been talking about. So changing formats, more visual content requires different kinds of skills. So not just writers in a newsroom, it requires interactive designers, editors, analysts, digital cartographers. You know, this, this list uh, was compiled by Aaron Pilhoffers, who used to work at the New York Times and is now executive editor at The Guardian. And um, 
he's essentially trying to create a team that does that, that can produce not just articles, but a whole load of these new formats, these new shareable formats, these formats that combine uh, editorial content and technology uh, together. And the other key part about that is it's not good enough just to create the content, you have to get it out to people. So you have to be able to take that content and publish it and know what you're publishing and use data to be able to know what's working so you can adjust it in real time. So this idea of bringing uh, not just uh, data into the newsroom but also technologists into the newsroom so that they can help you optimize these formats in real time is something that uh, organizations like uh, The Guardian and the BBC and others are, are working on. And there they are. So this, this was literally last week, two weeks ago. Um, uh, the BBC, uh, for the first time, has uh, technicians sitting in the heart of the newsroom. So here they are, Jeremy and Dan. And part of their role is to connect the real-time intention of the audience, what it is the audience wants, with the newsroom, and try and connect those, those two things together. And they're using data and technology uh, to do it. It's a very exciting moment. So uh, I've talked about a lot of stuff as ever, um, hopefully not too bewilderingly, uh, but just a few takeaways, uh, I think, in terms of, 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 of the main theme. So firstly, mobile social uh, remain the key disruptive forces in media. Um, I think as a result of that, it's not just about changing distribution, it's about changing uh, the formats of news. We have to think beyond the article and we have to reinvent many of these, the, the, these formats that we've been used to and we we, we love and we craft uh, together. Uh, journalists need to um, work more with, with audiences, closer with audiences, closer with sources, use social media to do that, but also engage in that continuing conversation as the story develops. Uh, fourthly, distribution and discovery is, is getting much more complex, so we're seeing that shift to off-site consumption, and traditional media companies just need to focus a lot more about how to use those channels, why they're using those channels, how to get the best out of those channels, how to adapt your content for all these different channels. And then the final bit, which hopefully is good news, is that um, it's not all about dumbing down or the lowest common denominator. It is about um, being really clear about your values and what it is you're trying to do. Um, because I think that you know, great ideas, strong content, strong messages remain absolutely at a premium in this world as, as they have done in, in the old system. Thank you. Great. Nick, thank you very much.